2 Corinthians chapter 5, as we continue our march through 2 Corinthians, uh, looking this morning at the topic, Operation Restoration. I want to ask you, while you're finding 2 Corinthians 5, turn back, I mean uh, 2 Corinthians 2, turn back to 1 Corinthians 5 as well, okay? 1 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 2. Now, as you'll hear later on in the context of the message, modern day commentators today do not believe the same fellow is being talked about in both of these passages. However, what is said in each passage helps shed light on the other one. So I want us to read both. Paul writes there, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. And then over in our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Paul writes, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what it means to be your people. I think of what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, that we are a chosen race, a royal people that you've called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. As Peter says there, we were once not a people, but now we are the people of God. And I'm reminded of your people in the Old Testament, Israel, how they were to live their lives in such a way that they would be a light to the nations. And likewise, in the New Covenant, the church 
is to live as light. You've given us a huge responsibility in this world. The privilege of being born again, the responsibility of reflecting the image and likeness of Christ. God, give us strength to do that. I pray that as we'll study today that we would not have too cavalier or casual an attitude towards sin. But that we would examine our hearts. And through the power of the Holy Spirit we would deal with any sin, sin of omission or sin of commission that is in our lives. That we would seek to be a pure people that others would see Christ in us. Speak to us through this text. Teach us your word. It is your word. We know as Paul wrote these words, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So open our hearts and minds to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. No doubt many of you have read books before like The Hiding Place, for instance, a lady by the name of Corey Tenboom, who was in the Jewish, a believer who was in the Jewish concentration camps during World War II. Now, I want you to listen what she writes about in her book, how she recalls a post-war meeting with a guard from the Ravensbrück concentration camp where her sister Betsy had died and where she herself had been subjected to all types of torture and cruel, inhumane treatment. Now again, this incident that she speaks of was years after the close of World War II. She writes, and I quote, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center of the camp. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it came all flooding back to me in my mind. It's as though I were there all over again. The room full of mocking men. The heaps of clothing and Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, how grateful I am for your message, he said. To think that as you say, he has now washed away all of my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale the need to forgive kept my hand down at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. He had died for him. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled and tried to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. And so give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing seemed to happen. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Forgiveness. That's the theme of this passage that we look at today. You know, the book of Proverbs says it is to the credit of a man and it is to the glory of a man that he is able to overlook a transgression. Perhaps we are never more like Jesus Christ than when we say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
In Romans 8.29, Paul says it is God's purpose for His Spirit to take His Word and conform us to the image of Christ. Well, folks, if we are going to be conformed to the image of Christ, then you and I are going to have to be people of forgiveness. And that is what Paul is challenging them to be here. Now, what we're going to learn today are, are a couple of different themes. First of all, we're going to see the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. That the church is to look at sin the same way that God does. We're to have the mind of Christ when it comes to sin. And Paul's going to point that out. But then he's going to go on to talk about the glory of forgiveness. Now folks, this is a weighty passage on these two things. Because he's going to speak of discipline and forgiveness. And speaking of discipline, church discipline, it's probably a subject that no pastor during the week, unless he were preaching through a book in the Bible, he probably wouldn't just randomly select a passage on church discipline to preach on. And that's the beauty of expository preaching where we go through a book in the Bible because whatever the next passage happens to be, whatever the next subject happens to be, you have to address that. And so the beauty of expository preaching is it exposes the people of God to the whole counsel of God. And that's what we need. Now I'm grateful that I can preach this passage this morning in my, in my 15 years of ministry here. The, the first half of the message dealing with discipline, we've not had to do that fortunately. But as the Bible says, we need to take heed lest we think we stand. Otherwise, we might fall. We don't need to be filled with pride or arrogance because that day might come that we would have to deal with these issues, but thank God we haven't had to. But what an important passage it is on dealing with discipline and forgiveness. Now the first thing I want you to see with me this morning is that sin can have public consequences. In verse 5, Paul says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. Now Paul points out that a wrong has been committed. A sin has occurred in the Corinthian fellowship. And he wants them to understand that it is a sin that has impacted the whole fellowship there at Corinth. Now folks, let's think about sin a moment. What is it that we like to fool ourselves about? We like to try to suggest that all sin is just private. It's between us and God and that's all. It's nobody else's business and indeed there are some sins that are that way. But the Bible also very clearly points out that there is some sin that is public. Sin in my life that can impact you. Sin in your life that can impact others. And if you stop and think about it, there's a lot of various sins in our life that if we'll just stop and consider it reasonably, we'll, we'll notice that it does impact other people. After all, there's a sense in which we're all leaders to a degree. If you're a parent or a grandparent... You're a leader in a sense. Your life impacts the lives of those around you that you're trying to train up in the Lord. And so believe it or not, there's a lot of things that go on in our life that we would have to admit spill out beyond the boundary of our own life. And that is what Paul is talking about here, that sin can have public consequences. And Paul is trying to show them that the sin of this one individual has affected the whole. Now scholars as they write on this passage, they would love it if Paul would have been more specific. 
It'd be nice if we knew more details about what had actually gone on. But as they weigh all of his different writings about Corinth and First and Second Corinthians and the book of Acts and, and they try to piece together everything that they knew was going on, they believe the scenario happened something like this. When Paul learned... Uh, from Timothy's visit to Corinth that there were troubles in the church there, Paul paid the Corinthians a visit. And by that visit, he was thinking that he could quickly patch up and fix all of their various problems. And then he could be on, their, on his way. But to his surprise and his disappointment, he was opposed to his face. Apparently there was a leader of the Corinthian church who publicly assaulted Paul while the rest of the congregation stood passively uh, by and they witnessed all of this happening. Paul's integrity was called into question. His travel plans, was he really a man of his word? Could his yes be trusted as yes and his no be trusted as no? We looked at that last week. And so his integrity was called into question. Beyond that, his honesty was called into question. Now one writer says something interesting about that and he admits it's only speculation. We ultimately don't know. But as far as honesty, you'll recall how Paul was going about preaching to the Macedonian churches and taking up a collection, a love offering among them and he was going to journey down to Jerusalem and give that love offering to the, to the Christians there in Jerusalem who had become Christians out of Judaism and because they were suffering persecution, many of them had lost their jobs and their lives livelihood and they needed help and so Paul was going to take this offering well the Corinthian church had been instructed to collect this offering and as one theory goes there was this unscrupulous leader in the church who had kind of started dipping into those funds and then when the shortage became public he tried to turn it around and cast blame away for, from himself and maybe suggest that the Apostle Paul was the one who had taken some of those funds. And so his honesty was called into question. And then the effectiveness of his ministry was called into question. They said, you know, in, in person he's this weak little mild-mannered man and he's nothing very impressive to look at or listen to, but in his letters he's so strong and blunt. And so they were calling his effectiveness into question. Well, Paul was taken back by all of this. He left Corinth for a short period of time and he wrote what is referred to as the painful letter that we don't have a copy of today. Well, the letter had achieved its purpose. The majority saw that Paul had been unjustly attacked and they dealt with the troublemakers, the ringleader in particular, and apparently they had even conducted church discipline and put him out of the church. Paul wants them to see here in verse 5 that they've, they've done well by doing everything they, they've done because after all, again, this sin that has been committed has also been committed against them, not just Paul. This whole mess that's going on at Corinth, Paul wants them to understand that their witness as a body of believers has been diminished. And so this person has hurt all of them. Now folks, we need to understand this. We live in a day where people love this Lone Ranger mentality. But we need to understand the corporate nature of the church. 
that we are members of a family. And, and the, the, the church in the book of Acts understood this well. In chapter 2, there are those marvelous pictures of the church being together, having all things in common. And when they saw one another hurting or going through situations, they were quick to help one another out. They were a family. There's a corporate nature to the church. And, and as 1 Corinthians 12 points out, we are a body. We are members that belong to one another. One is a hand, one's a foot, one's an eye, one's an ear, one's a nose, one's a mouth. We have all different parts in the body of Christ. And we fit together when we fit together and everybody is carrying out their ministry. Then we make up this body that is effective in our witness. And so there's a corporate nature to the church. We need to understand that today. And again, it cuts both ways. In ministry, it's good because we have a common vision and a common ministry. If there's sin in the fellowship, it can be bad because that sin can spread and impact the entire church. And so sin can have public consequences. The second principle I want you to see is where there is repentance, restoration is in order. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now as I mentioned in response to Paul's harsh letter. The church had gotten together. They'd seen things Paul's way. They had dealt with this ringleader. And apparently they had disfellowshipped him. They had carried out church discipline. Now, when's the last time you've heard that topic? Probably not recently. It's not a topic we hear much of today. But I think what one writer has said, Mark Dever out of Capitol Hill Baptist in D.C., he said one of the nine marks of an authentic church ministry is that the church practices church discipline, it is a thoroughly biblical principle. It is in the long run to be a statement of love. Just like parents, for instance. The book of Proverbs says that a dad actually hates his son if he will not discipline his son. Discipline is a show of love because you care about that individual. And just like there is discipline in a family, there is to be discipline in a church family if it's warranted. Now perhaps out of all the principles in the New Testament that have to do with the church, this is the one that is least understood and least practiced. And sadly, when it is practiced, oftentimes... It is mishandled. Oftentimes church discipline is carried out only in a punitive way and there's no redemptive element in it. If there is no redemptive element in church discipline, then it has not been thoroughly biblical. So hang on to that word redemptive because we're going to come back around to that after being pretty blunt about what church discipline is and showing you what it's meant to accomplish we're going to come back around to the good news of this redemptive element in the long run so hang on and stick with me to there okay but both elements are to be present First, I want to explain church discipline. It is that biblical principle that when a sin has occurred that affects the fellowship in some way, for instance, maybe it's harmed the testimony of the fellowship, the church is to take action to bring that sin out in the open and to deal with it in a biblical way. 
Now, Jesus talked about these matters in Matthew chapter 18. He said, go to your brother and try to deal privately with him over this issue where an offense has happened in a church family. Go to your brother, deal with him privately, and hopefully it stops right there. You settle the issue. If he will not listen, grab one or two more and take them with you so that he can hear not only from your mouth but the mouth of others because every matter is to be established by two or more witnesses. Well, if he still will not listen, Jesus said, tell it to the church. Hopefully, He'll listen to the church. There's been three layers uh, of protection here. Hopefully, time you get to that third layer, the church, he'll listen to the church. But Jesus said, if he will not, then you are to treat him as a Gentile, that is, an unbeliever, a pagan, and you're to put him out and not have anything to do with him. Now that very scenario had apparently happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And that's why I had us read that passage first. You see in that passage there was a man who had a son and this man, this father, had remarried. Now when he remarried, his new wife and his son had begun to carry on together sexually. A young man was having relations with his stepmother. Paul said that is not even something that you hear about out in the world among unbelievers. He says, and yet you've not dealt with this sin. In fact, in celebrating your liberties in Christ, you've even acted as though you're proud of it. You know, there are some groups like that today that want to celebrate how inclusive they are, right? Oh, just come on in, they say. We'll welcome anybody at any time for any reason. And what does Paul say to the Corinthians about that? He says, shame on you. You see, folks, the church is to be inclusive as far as taking the gospel to the world and even the world coming into the church in order to hear the gospel but then once somebody joins actually joins that fellowship they're making a statement now that now I am professing to be among the redeemed that Jesus Christ has saved me I'm a new creation in Christ and I'm coming into the church fellowship with other brothers and sisters and the Bible says when that happens we come into the family of God and just like in a normal family there's accountability with one another in a church family there's accountability to one another that's biblical. Paul said, since you won't deal with this fellow who is unrepentant, I will. Next time you gather together around the Lord's table in public worship, though I will not be there in the flesh, I will be there in the spirit. And you are to hand this gentleman over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that in the day of judgment his soul might be saved. So apparently they accepted the fact that this guy was a believer, but he was caught up in the bondage of sin. Now I spoke last week about a seared conscience. When somebody has become so numb to sin in their own life, uh, church discipline is intended to be a wake-up call to that believer. The church sort of becomes their conscience. And it's intended to accomplish several things. First of all, it protects the testimony of that particular body of believers within the church. 
You see, Paul wrote to them, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, public sin that is left unchecked in church can end up having devastating consequences on that very body of believers. Other believers in that fellowship, the, the, the new believers for instance, or immature believers can start thinking that maybe sin is no big deal and so they can be led astray in their own lives. But secondly, the testimony of that fellowship outside of the church can be seriously da damaged. Just like the testimony of an individual can be damaged, the testimony of a group can be damaged. Now commonly any time a case of church discipline comes up, automatically some will say, well, aren't we all guilty of sin? So who are we to judge? In other words, the mentality is just live and let live. And beyond that, what I fear that some may mean also is that sin has become so accepted in society today. I mean, it's so rampant. Pastor, we don't even want to go there. Don't even open up that can of worms. Just let everybody live and let live. But the Bible doesn't teach that. There are certain situations, now hopefully few and far between, emphasis on that phrase, few and far between. Hopefully few and far between when something simply can't be overlooked. To overlook it would mean to let the leaven remain and if leaven remains it spreads and it ruins the testimony and the witness and the strength of the whole group. And while it's true that we've all sinned, that doesn't mean that God looks at all sin the same. For instance, spitting on your neighbor's dog is not the same thing as sleeping with his wife. And then just go back to the Pentateuch in your mind with me for a moment. The first five books in the Bible. You remember what God instructed Moses to tell the assembly? He instructed Moses to tell the assembly if somebody commits this sin, then they are to bring this kind of offering and here is how you are to respond to them. But now if they commit this kind of sin over here, you're to present this kind of offering and then this kind of action is to be taken. But now if this kind of sin has been committed, you're to put him to death. And so God did not treat all sin equally. Yes, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but people have erroneously concluded by saying that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, that all sin is handled the same. No, it's not. Just look at the fellowship at Corinth, for instance. They were divided among themselves and they were bickering and backbiting and, and they were gossiping and, and they were chasing after various personalities saying, oh, I'm of, of the group of Cephas, Peter. I, I'm of Paul's groups. I'm of Christ. And, and they were so divided. They were even taking one another to court and suing one another. And they were so prideful and boasting about their, their spiritual gifts. Sin was entering into their fellowship because some of them were building themselves up and building, tearing others down. And they were boasting about who had what gift and who didn't have those gifts. And somehow or another, those less seemly gifts may be unimportant to the church. And so there was all kinds of sin going on at the church at Corinth but it was just that case in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. It was only that case where God said, put him out. 
all this other stuff going on that Paul called them on the carpet about, but it was this sin over here, not these over here, that God said, you need to deal with that immoral brother and you need to put him out. So again, the point is, church discipline was not used in every case, but it was used in some cases. Now, it becomes a statement to the church, to the center, to the world that we take sin as seriously as God does. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, it is not proper or fitting that immorality would even be named one time among you. I'll never forget a case about six or seven years ago when the 4,000 churches that make up the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina had to put another church out. It's a church, depending on traffic, 30 minutes to an hour drive away from us here. I won't name the church. That's not important. But I use this as an illustration of where church discipline was carried out on a corporate level but up in Greensboro there are about 30 of us sitting in a in a conference room one morning on the executive committee and this church had appealed to us because constitution bylaws had been changed they knew they they weren't in accord with things and so they were appealing their case before us so in came the pastor the church leadership, and the chairman of their deacons. Now the chairman of their deacons by her own profession of faith, by her own profession, she was an active practicing lesbian. And we appealed to this church and we appealed to her to see the seriousness of the situation. And how this was not in keeping with the body of Christ. And we begged and pleaded with them and spoke to them. They had no issue whatsoever over her lifestyle. She indicated that she had no plans to turn from her lifestyle. In fact... She told us a statement that blew us away. She looked us in the eye and said, For me to be anything other than a lesbian, I believe I would be sinning against God. And we were like, do what? She said, I believe God created me this way. This is God's stamp on my life. This is who he made me to be. And so for me to not live out these passions and inclinations, I would be denying God's creative act. Well, we couldn't get her to look at it differently. We voted her out, voted them out. They appealed to the larger body that day, about 3,500 messengers. They felt the same way we did. We put the church out. Now folks, there are several levels at which what they were doing was wrong. First of all, I mean let's not even deal with, first of all, with the same sex thing. I'll get to that. But any any immoral relationship outside of the bounds of marriage is wrong. For a man and a woman to live together, to cohabitate without marriage. And for it to be a sexual relationship, the Bible calls it wrong. The Bible refers to that as fornication. It is sin in the eyes of God. And so just just immorality outside of marriage, just period, on the most basic level, is wrong. But then on the next level, this woman and this congregation were denying and turning away from some of the sternest warnings in the Bible that have to do with same-sex relationships. 
And they did, she didn't want to hear it. She did not want to acknowledge that that was wrong. And so church discipline was enacted. That's biblical. It's a statement to the person that they need to re-examine their life, their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not listening to the witness of the word. And so now their brothers and sisters in Christ are even trying to lovingly say to them, you need to turn. You need to change. And again, the body becomes their conscience. Now the whole goal in mind in this is so that the person's eyes would be opened they would turn away from their activity. They would come back into an, an obedient fellowship with the Lord. And then you've won your sister or your brother. So the whole goal of church discipline is to be redemptive. That's what you're praying for and that's what you're hoping for. You hope it will accomplish that. And in this case, apparently, it had. And so in verse 6, Paul says it's time to forgive him and welcome him back. Now, almost all older commentators say that this is the identical guy between 1 Corinthians 5. Now, this guy spoken of in 2 Corinthians 2, it's one and the same. Almost all modern commentators, and I think the weight of evidence goes with them, modern commentators say, no, this is a different scenario. In fact, one even says that guy back there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he died. It was a case like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 when, he, when they came in and, and Peter confronted them and they dropped dead. When Paul said the next time that you meet together, I'm going to meet there with you and turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It was something very unique to the apostolic age, not of today. That guy died. Could be. But most modern commentators say this is, a, this is a different guy. This is the guy who stirred up trouble in the congregation, stirred up trouble for Paul, was weakening and diminishing the whole ministry there. Now though he's come to repentance and Paul says it's time to welcome him back. And so it had all worked beautifully. Now you say, what if it doesn't work? What if discipline fails? Then it's a statement to the particular party. You're now in God's hands. You wouldn't listen to one or two. You wouldn't listen to the larger assembly. And now that we've put you out, we're, we're putting you out and we're saying now you're under God's judgment in this matter. And better to be under people's judgment than God's judgment because the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But in the case where it doesn't work, you're just turning this person over to God saying we've done all we can do and now it's up to God to deal with you. But it had happened beautifully. And notice what Paul says, it's now time to forgive and comfort. Now, folks, let's deal with those themes one at a time. First of all, forgive. As a body of believers, that's something that, that we're to be eager to do and ready to do. Jesus told a parable in, in Matthew 18 about forgiveness, about this huge debt that we owe to God that we could never pay. And so any debt we owe to one another is just itty-bitty debts compared to what we owe to God. If God can forgive us of all of our transgressions, surely we can forgive one another. And in that story that Jesus told, he really points out there that if we, do not, if we do not have the nature to forgive in our hearts, if it's not in our makeup to forgive, 
after somebody has made things right. As Jesus pointed out there, that ought to be a wake-up call to a person to examine their faith. Because God has a nature to forgive. If you can't forgive, could be an indication that you don't have His nature. I.e., that you're not even saved. We need to reflect His character. Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're presenting your gift at the altar and there you remember somebody has something against you, you first go get that right and then you come back and offer your gift. In other words, God's going to accept your worship and your gift after you get right with your brother. So how you respond to others even affects your relationship with God. Forgiveness is critical. John Wesley once had the occasion to drive this truth home. He had offended the British General Oglethorpe who exploded. He said, I never forgive. And Wesley said, then sir, I hope you never sin. Not only forgive, but comfort. It's the same word used of the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of us to encourage us. Folks, when all the evidence points towards somebody having a change of heart and mind and repenting and coming back into fellowship with the Lord, we are not to hinder that. We are not to refuse them. We are to forgive them and welcome them and encourage them. It's our duty to do that. And that's what Paul is pointing out to them. It's time now to forgive this guy and welcome him back. Thirdly, quickly, I want to point out, in the case of sin and restoration, Satan will try to work both to his advantage. In verse 11 here, uh, he says, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. What does the devil want us doing? Two angles that Paul covers both of them here. Angle number one, the devil would love for us to diminish sin. Look at sin lightly. Look at it casually. Cavalier attitude toward it. He'll try to get people to just dismiss sin. Because by doing that, they'll end up hurting their witness. So Satan will try to get a body of believers to just overlook sin. Let anything go. Anything, anytime. Doesn't matter. Well, when we wise up to that and say, no, the Bible says we're to deal with things, then Satan wants to come along and say, aha, now you need to be harsh and unbending and a critical spirit and unforgiving. So if he can't win the day with people one way, he'll turn and try to come at them a different way. So Paul said we, we need to be careful that we're not just walking in to Satan's devices here. He's telling them if you don't welcome this guy back after he's repented and you're harsh, then you're going to be walking into Satan's trap. His point is that in both regards, Jesus is to be our model. Jesus never overlooked sin. He told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He didn't overlook her sin. He said, go and sin no more. He didn't overlook it. And at the same time, when those outcasts came to Jesus in repentance and faith, he welcomed them home. In fact, the Pharisees wouldn't. And remember what he said to the Pharisees on one occasion? He said, you guys need to acknowledge something. The prostitutes and the tax collectors are getting into the kingdom of God 
ahead of you. Because they were so rigid and unbending. Jesus dealt with sin honestly, took it seriously. In fact, had he not taken sin seriously, he wouldn't have even come to die on the cross for us. Because he died for our sin. That's how serious God views sin. It cost his son his life on the cross. God doesn't look at sin lightly. But when there's repentance and faith, just like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, the father was standing there with open arms and he ran to meet his son, younger son, who was coming back home. That's how we're to be. We're not to be like the elder brother who said, hmm, I'm not going to receive my younger brother back. So I want to ask you this morning, what is your attitude to sin? Is it your desire to view sin the way God views sin, to take it very seriously? So if there is sin in your heart, sin in your life, you go before God in confession and repentance and say, God, by your strength and grace, I'm going to turn away from this. Don't let sin go unchecked in your life. God doesn't want that for you. He wants you and I living in such a way that our lives are a testimony to an upside down world. Now, somebody that has wronged you and needs to be welcomed back, forgiven, what's your attitude toward them? Is there somebody that you might need to go to this very day and forgive? What's your attitude towards sin? What's your attitude toward forgiveness? Would you stand please? Our hymn of invitation is going to be on the screens uh, behind me, in front of you. It may be that just right there in the privacy of your seat this morning, right there in your seat, you need to say, Oh God, deal with such and such in my life. Deal with such and such in my life because I know this issue must grieve you and I don't want to grieve you. If there is somebody that you need to forgive, like Corey Tenboom. At the beginning of the message, say, God, help me to have your forgiveness. Maybe somebody this morning needs to come forward and say, Pastor, I need Christ in my heart. I'd love to talk to you about becoming a Christian. Or maybe you feel led to be a part of a corporate body of believers where we can strive together to serve and honor God.